Greetings and welcome back to the Ideas Podcast. I'm Daniel Lazar, and I'm proud to be the co-founder of and the faculty advisor to the John F. Kennedy School Ideas Club. Joining me today is the managing editor of the Ideas Journal and the producer for the Ideas Podcast, Lily. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's a good day for me. And along with Lily, we have the Ideas Director of Community Outreach, Hannah Cook. How goes it, Hannah Cook? Better than ever. Wow. <laughs> That's good to hear. And of course, the Director of Ideas, our fearless leader, Jacob Reuter. Hi, Jacob. Hello. We are recording on November 8th, one day after most reasonable people have come to conclude that Joseph R. Biden Jr. is the president-elect of the United States of America. While some 48% of Americans are not so thrilled about the outcome, most of them will lick their wounds and move on with their lives. The rest, well, I, I guess we'll see. But one thing is for sure, 2020 was not a sweeping victory for Democrats. It was not a full-throated repudiation of Trump and Trumpism. And we here at the Ideas Podcast seek to explore how and why the Democrats settled for Biden and what this means for the future of the Dems and the future of partisan politics in America. Though not without our own political predilections, the Ideas Podcast doesn't really aim to be particularly political per se. So tell us, Lily, why did you propose this topic and how does it fit into the broader ideas mission? I propose this largely just because it's very important to me, which I think it is to all of us who are recording this right now. But I think in general, you know, the president and the party system in the United States is a reflection of our morals and our beliefs as people and deeply considering how our morals are being reflected in politics is important to our mission because issues of diversity and identity are central to a lot of big political debates right now. Mm -hmm. And so the initial proposal, as I recall it, you were really interested in this notion of the, you know, settle for Biden movement, right? Yeah, that's right. And it had something to do, if I recall, with your, your concerns about the identity of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think the settle for Biden movement was, you know, started by you know, a group of, of older voters, of older, more leftist voters, but it was really adopted by people of our generation, Gen Z, um, all over the internet as saying, we don't like Joe Biden, but we can't do any better. And I think that is a very interesting concept because it's such a major, you know, demographic within the Democratic Party that doesn't actually believe in the same things as Biden. And I think exploring how he actually represents uh, democratic people is, is, is interesting in that sense. So young people who are exploring their own identities and trying to make sense out of the fact that they are large and they contain multitudes, the democratic party too is struggling for its identity. It is large, 
it contains multitudes. And therein we have the nexus between daily partisan politics, this moment that we're in, and the broader ideas mission. But just to set the table a little bit more, Jacob, can you tee it up for us by describing the rifts in the Democratic Party? Like, what are the rifts and what, in your humble estimation, has caused these rifts? The biggest problem with the Democratic Party right now is that there is no Democratic Party. There's only an anti-Republican Party. I think the only thing that really unites Democratic politicians is the fact that they oppose the Republicans. If you look at candidates from this year's primaries, like Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders, they have policy-wise essentially nothing in common except that they oppose the Republican status quo, which at the moment is Trump. Like there are no defined Democratic Party lines that you have to adhere to. And I think that's the biggest problem. I think that's what divides so many Democrats is that they can't decide what they want to be right now. They can only decide that they are against whatever the Republicans are saying. So is it your sense then that the Republicans are driving the car or have been driving the car for at least the past four years? The Republicans controlled the presidency for the last four years. And a lot of the Democratic Party's sort of outreach has been based on opposing Trump. So I think, yeah, in a sense, yes. I think the, the Republicans have been sort of steering, steering the car um, and the Democrats have just sort of been opposing them. And of course, to add to that, in addition to controlling the executive branch, the Republicans, as we know, control the Senate. We have a conservative majority in the Supreme Court. Most of the governors, most of the state houses are indeed Republican controlled and in some cases dominated, right? Right. Is that what has caused the rifts in the Democratic Party? Maybe. Uh, I think that definitely plays into it. The thing is, I feel like on the left, specifically within the Democratic Party, there's a lot more diversity of thought, but also a lot less compromise. You see, when like Republicans are chosen as, as candidates, the rest of the party tends to fall into line, whereas Democrats seem a lot more ideological in their positions. Um, so when even the slightest disagreement comes up, I feel like Democrats don't tend to um, sort of support the other candidate, even if it means conceding some of their some of their points, because they're just not willing to do that on an ideological basis. Yet, maybe to your surprise, certainly to your pleasure, Democrats seem to be willing to quote unquote settle for Biden. So, what does it mean exactly to settle for Biden? And then you know, we should ask why we should or shouldn't do so. So what does it mean to settle for Biden? I think most of the people um, arguing that, you know, Democrats or even moderate Republicans should settle for Biden. Most of their reasoning was just Trump is a really horrible president and should not be allowed to remain in office regardless of who his opposition is. I think in some cases it, it came out of a, a moderate acceptance of Biden's uh, politics. And in some cases it was literally just an anti-Trump vote. It was, it was a lot of people who think American politics have in a sense stagnated um, when it comes to progressive change, but just view the sort of regression that would happen under four more years of Trump as much worse than an ideological vote for a third party or refusing to vote. 
Well, let me just throw this in there from the outset. The Democratic Party settled for Biden because Joe Biden won the Democratic primaries rather handily. And not to throw too much salt into the discussion too early, but I wonder about this whole settle for Biden movement. I mean, don't we all settle for the person who's democratically elected in a reasonably fair process through the primary system that's been established? Ideally, yes, but Democrats don't have a tendency to do that. Specifically, I think the settle for Biden thing is strong with the Bernie supporters and the Warren supporters, the sort of progressive wing of the Democratic Party who is not too happy with the, the choice of Joe Biden. This settling for Biden doesn't really apply to most of the Democratic Party. It's more about getting the progressive wing on board with a not so progressive candidate. Have you all in your minds settled for Biden? More than that, I'm a full-on Biden supporter, and I have been for quite some time. I'm certainly to the left of Biden. However, I think Biden is a competent politician uh, that has proven that he can uh, draw support from large crowds, be they left or right or center. You know, he would make a good choice for Canada, even if I disagree with some of his policy. So personally, I'm, I'm not just settling for Biden. I'm a full-on Biden supporter, and I think he would be a good president. I can't imagine thinking anything else uh, besides that we need Biden to be president. Like Jacob said, he's a perfectly competent politician. I think he's a good man. And even though we may not totally agree on a lot of policies, I wasn't expecting my dream candidate in any sense. So I'm, I'm fully okay with settling for Biden. Hannah Cook, has it been difficult for you to settle for Biden? It was a little bit difficult for me in the beginning. I wasn't completely convinced of of Joe Biden when um, he won the primaries, the Democratic primaries. But throughout these last months and actually throughout the Settle for Biden movement and kind of campaign, I've become very convinced by him. And I think I would go so far as to join Jacob in saying that I am now a Biden supporter and not just a person who's, you know, is trying to settle for Biden. I would say that too, yeah. So why is it that this has become so problematic for Democrats? I mean, isn't all politics necessarily a matter of settling, a matter of compromise? Why has this seemed to be so hard for so many, particularly for people about your age, the the under 30 voter? I think it might have something to do with the fact that we had a Democratic president for eight years. It feels to me like a lot of people came to sort of expect um, the kind of leadership that they saw in Obama. And also were maybe fairly young if they were in our generation when Obama was president and thus did not know enough about him to be you know, as critical of him as they are of Joe Biden now. And I think people are also rather disappointed with the, the way that it seems the Democratic Party did not have their stuff together when Obama left office because so much of the progress they made during those eight years, although it was already very incremental, was erased so quickly. So am I hearing from all of you that the Settle for Biden meme or movement or campaign is like what the Democratic Party should be trying to do? 
given the circumstances, it's a strategic move from the Democratic Party. I think it's pretty much all they can do now. But I don't think it's ideal. I think kind of what Lily was saying before is is because we grew up having eight years of Obama, an African-American president, a progressive president. And Biden seems to be in line with that, but I wouldn't say much more progressive than that. It seems kind of stagnated. And for a lot of young Democrats as well, it seems like there's a lot more possibility, especially with candidates such as Sanders and Warren. The settle for Biden thing, it doesn't apply to most Democrats. I feel like the Democratic Party has already sort of agreed to settle for Biden. I think it's just Bernie Sanders supporters and maybe some Elizabeth Warren supporters who are mad that their candidate didn't get picked again. It's sort of like the younger, more more progressive wing of the uh, of the Democratic Party that's really that really needs to be convinced here. I don't see many uh, Beto O'Rourke supporters saying, "Oh shucks, why is it Joe Biden?" Like I think I think this is very much very much a like left wing Democrat thing, not a Democratic Party in general thing. So we might end up talking about identity politics a little bit later. And I know that none of you are bigots, of course, you're all so splendidly open-minded, but I have the sense that a lot of people had a hard time settling for Biden because he's an old white guy. And somewhere between like ageism and racial identity politics, it made it hard for people to settle for Biden. Tell me how wrong I am. It's interesting that you saw that I saw really the opposite, I feel like. I think people were much more willing to settle for Biden because he's an old white guy. He's sort of the standard of, you know, capable politicians. Um, I think that helped him, you know, as opposed to Hillary Clinton, who a lot of people ultimately did not settle for. She was a woman and a lot of the arguments against her were were in some way related to that. Though it might not be necessarily satisfying, especially for women and minorities, him being a white guy, an old white guy, was completely fine for him. It might have helped more than it hurt. I I would agree that it helped Biden in the long run, but I feel like for me personally and for what I've heard from people around me, you're actually spot on, Lazar, not Lily, about it. I mean, I found myself yelling at my TV during the election saying, you know, why are there two white old men looking at me right now in the two pictures up on CNN? And it was it was kind of it was kind of vexing and kind of annoying, but I think Lily's right. I think that's what made him relatable in the long run for more voters. Can I ask, have you three heard as frequently as I have heard friends and family members say something along these lines? Like, yeah, Joe Biden is the standard bearer, but like, does America need another white man in a position of power? Do we need another white male president? I've heard it a bunch. Have you heard it a bunch? Yeah. 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 Is that an okay thing to say? I think yes. You know, I think it comes from a place of people feeling that the issues which are extremely important to them are being largely ignored because they're not first priority for for white men, you know? Barack Obama, I think people had a sense, cared more about civil rights, um, cared more about you know, police brutality, regardless of whether that was true, because he was a black man. And I think seeing another white guy going back to that standard, which has been every single president except Obama, 
can be frustrating because we've had just the one perspective in a country which is supposed to be great because of all of the different perspectives which comprises it. So it doesn't bother anyone as much as it maybe bothers some people that blatant ageism and well, let's just talk about that first, that blatant ageism, open, defiant, blatant ageism can be expressed in polite society. I think when people like call into question the fact that Joe Biden is the oldest president of all time, they sort of link that to competence, right? Like they did the same for Sanders. Can someone who is this old really be president considering like with age there come like, you know, many like the higher chances of many illnesses, specifically mental illnesses, like is this person fit to rule a massive nation? I think that's a perfectly legitimate concern. I don't know if this constitutes ageism necessarily. Well, it presupposes that his mental acuity isn't up to the task because of his age. Is that not a reasonable concern? I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. Because there isn't really any actual evidence that his mental capabilities are diminishing, and that's basically just right-wing propaganda. Uh, people using that as a justification not to vote for Biden clearly have no standing there because Trump is essentially as old as Biden and neither of them have shown like mental deficits worthy of that concern. I get it as sort of a worry at the back of everyone's mind, especially when it comes to picking a vice president. If Joe Biden had picked an, an entirely unacceptable vice president like John McCain did with Sarah Palin, that might have been a bigger a bigger topic of interest. But to me, you know, Kamala Harris is quite similar to Joe Biden politically, and this was also considered capable by a lot of the Democratic Party, which is why he chose her in the event of you know, him being unable to serve as president. And we don't really have any evidence that he's been you know, negatively impacted by his age in any significant way. So I don't think that is a justifiable issue to base your vote on, but I do get why people would complain about it. I understand why people would complain about it, and um, I don't have any judgment of them for for being concerned about another old white guy. I have this sense that it was hard for many to settle for Biden because politics have become so emotionally charged, so ego-driven, and so angry in the United States that people had a hard time settling for Biden because they felt a great sense of loss, emotional loss for not having, for example, Elizabeth Warren on the ticket or having Bernie Sanders on the ticket. And there's a lot of anger and a lot of people who were supporting Sanders and supporting Warren or some of the more progressive candidates, they vilified Joe Biden on, frankly, I'm gonna say baseless grounds. He can be criticized, but it's really hard to vilify Joe Biden. And Joe Biden got vilified by progressive Democrats. And once they villainized him, it's hard to settle for him. And I think these two forces act in tandem to make it hard for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to settle for Biden. What do you make of that notion? I mean, it seems to be obviously true. If you look at the primary debates, you can see 
the progressive candidates tearing into Joe Biden brutally, like with full on character attacks. So I don't like I'm personally not a massive Sanders or Warren supporter. So I can I totally see that as a legitimate sort of grievance with the Democrats. They targeted Biden because he was an easy target, just as uh, Michael Bloomberg was an easy target. And they just sort of went with it. And yeah, obviously, that creates problems for us now in 2020. I think depending on which specific, you know, comments you're referring to, it is valid for them to make him answer for things he's done in the past, even if they were a long time in the past, or even if they're maybe not, you know, one of his major policy, uh, you know, points. I think a lot of the progressives knew, I mean, obviously they knew there were a lot of Democratic candidates and they knew that they had all a very low chance of becoming the choice in the Democratic primary. Instead of talking all about themselves, I, I think the strategy was related to like trying to convince, you know, people who would just complacently go with the most obvious candidate, Joe Biden, to question whether his ideas and whether he as a person would be the best candidate. And I think, yeah, it, it might have hurt him later on, but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't have done it, I don't think. I guess what I'm trying to do is to draw a line between criticizing Biden's policy in this record and criticizing his basic character. I fully agree with you that part of the process is criticizing any politician's record, their policy, their proposals. But trying to make a name for oneself and trying to create space for a progressive agenda by tearing into the character of the opponent makes it pretty hard to come around and quote unquote settle for them. Don't you think? Yeah. And I would hope that, you know, later on the people who were, you know, considering whether to settle for Biden were considering it on a more personal moral standpoint, thinking really about whether they could ideologically get behind him and not just going off of the petty attacks made early in the campaign. And I think that would be true. I don't think that many people who were unsure about Biden were unsure because of dumb reasons. I think they had legitimate concerns. I think anyone who had like small nitpicks about Biden generally got in line pretty quickly. So the 2020 elections were hardly a resounding endorsement of the Democratic Party, down ballot in the Senate, the state houses. I'm wondering what you think the pathways are to creating a more unified identity within the Democratic Party. Because Hannah Cook, you're saying that within 24 hours of Joe Biden seemingly getting the nomination, the divisions are already re-emerging and there's, put, there's pressure being put on Biden to move left. That's what, that's what your social media feed is suggesting. And I'm wondering what the pathways are to uniting the Democrats. Should there necessarily be a pathway to uniting the Democrats? Yes. I, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that's I think a fundamental problem of the two-party system is that you will always have so many disagreements within one party that they can't form a common consensus. And I think that's going to prevail no matter what, what we do as a party. People like Sanders are always going to disagree with people like Biden. I, I don't want to pick nits here. Mm -hmm but I'm going to choose a word. I don't think the Democrats need a consensus. Mm -hmm. I think they need a prevailing sense 
of identity and unity, which entails not getting everything you want on every issue, growing up a little bit, compromising. The issues which are really most important to a lot of people are not the issues that, you know, moderate Democrats seem to be acting upon. That's the source of the division in many ways. The central ideas which motivate people's, you know, political beliefs are often not being addressed. When you have Joe Biden, who, you know, was famous for being a fan of, you know, policing, and then Kamala Harris, who was, who, I mean, they call her, what, Coppola or something like that. If your major issue is like the American police are killing black people for no reason and need to be defunded and the Democratic candidates who you're supposed to be supporting don't seem to care about fixing that, I understand where that division comes from. And I don't think there's an easy way to solve that, because how are you expecting people to give up their central, you know, ideological standpoint just because it would cause unity and maybe some more power for the Democratic Party? Because how's that power for you if you don't actually believe the same things as that party that you're empowering? It's not that Democrats have a problem of falling into line. It's just the Sanders and the Warrenites. It's those, the supporters of Sanders and Warren have sort of been a thorn in the Democratic side since 2016. None of the other candidates had a problem endorsing Joe Biden when he got nominated, when it became clear that their candidate wouldn't win um, and that Joe Biden would probably make the nomination their supporters fell into line and said, all right, we make a compromise, we support. It was just Sanders and Warren and their supporters who failed to do so. It's a problem with cynical young people who support Sanders and Warren, nothing else, uh, anything right of, of Sanders is essentially fascism. And I think that's the biggest problem with the Democratic Party. That specific demographic of voters um, cannot be pleased. That's my question. Is there a path to trying to satiate young people, more progressive people, many of whom did show up, they held their noses and they voted for Joe Biden. Is there a way to get them in the tent and keep them in the tent? I mean, the presidency is not the only political position. You know, we have AOC, we have the squad, I think congressional representation is one of the best ways to get more niche standpoints addressed. I mean, Bernie Sanders has been an independent congressperson for many years. And I think that's one of the best avenues. You can get legislation passed that's more progressive. The president will likely be willing to sign it if it's a democratic proposal that's been passed. The president is not the only thing that you should be fighting for. You, you need to you know, vote for the candidate that has a chance to win. Like Jacob said, that, that was the central idea settled for Biden. But it doesn't mean that you need to, you know, vote for the most likely candidate to win in every single smaller election. Yeah, I think Lily brings up a super interesting point and one that this election actually supports a lot because a lot of LGBTQ plus representatives were elected during this election. You have Sarah McBride, the first um, openly transgender senator, I think she was. And then you have Native American, non-binary, you have a wide array of very progressive people that were elected to state and local and um, congressional leadership positions. And that seems to be a cause for some celebration. And I 
will tell you that I have been heartened in the last 24 hours by the celebration of the Biden victory. In fact, I've been inspired over the course of the last five days for the enthusiasm around Joe Biden. I wasn't expecting it to happen. I want to pose a heartening thought to you to hear your reaction to it. If history teaches us anything, it's that there are times in history where seemingly ordinary people are given an opportunity to be extraordinary. Joe Biden has a very respectable track record. His biography is kind of beautiful. His policy positions are at the very least rational and representative. He has a capacity for empathy that will be, let's say, refreshing. And he has, despite his age, or perhaps because of it, just as much potential to be a first-rate president as anyone else. If it were November of 1860, I can't fathom that any of us would have laid down a wager that Abraham Lincoln would be deemed a century and a half later as one of the greatest presidents in American history, if not the greatest. Joe Biden has just as much of an opportunity to be the greatest president in American history as anyone else. People rise. Are we willing to be open to that possibility? Or has cynicism taken such strong root that that's a mere impossibility? I like to at least pretend I'm an optimist. Yeah, I hope that he can, you know, rise to what the people are hoping for, what the Democrats are hoping for. I don't know if his, you know, history and politics is necessarily denoting that he will move left in any way or in any significant way. He does have a, like a great history of successful compromise with Republicans. And though that that's really hard right now, I think there's a distinct possibility that he could do some really great things. And I'm hoping that he pulls through and does that. Good, me too. But as I said at the head of this whole thing, Trump seems to have been defeated, but Trumpism remains the next would-be authoritarian, could be strikingly more competent than the one we're about to kick to the curb. What does the strength of so-called Trumpism mean for the future of the Dems? Right now, I feel like the Trumpians that have been championing his policy and his reign for the past four years are fleeing like cockroaches to protect, like, to protect themselves from the backlash that they're getting. If you think about the Shapiros on Twitter, 
that are right now questioning Trump's authority, that are saying that they haven't been fully supportive of everything he's done for the past four years, uh, despite their track record proving otherwise. I feel like with this clear electoral defeat, Trumpism is taking a massive step backwards. I don't think that Trumpism is going to be a massive threat to American democracy. I think that might be underselling it. Um, sure is. Yeah, I mean, like Mr. Lazar said, you know, the next person who tries to be Trump might be a lot smarter than Trump. I would say we do need to be worried because these people can be backpedaling to save themselves now, but if they really ideologically disagreed with him and chose to support him fully anyway, we can't trust them in any sense. And if they really did ideologically agree with him and this was just them coming out of the woodworks and now they're backpedaling to save themselves we can't trust them you know to to not go back to that either so i i don't think the the idea that people are backpedaling now really enforces the idea that trumpism is dying or that it's not very strong or anything like that the sentiments that trump stirred up were there before he arrived and they will remain now that he's leaving this this blind loyalty and this passion that these Trump supporters have. And I mean, I, I still see it amongst Trump supporters. I mean, especially given this whole claim of fraudulent election, they're still very much united and they're still very much, they're pissed off. 48% of Americans voted for Donald Trump. It is as clear to me as can be that populist nationalism is alive and well in America. So my question is, what can the Democrats do? How can the Democrats establish an identity? How can the Democrats come together to develop, you're right, Jacob, not a consensus, but a sense of shared values, the most notable of which might have to be compromised to move forward an agenda that pleases enough people enough of the time and to stay unified. You know, one of the strategies that the Democratic Party has had success with in the past is sort of, you know, giving symbolic things. Um, and I know some people are fed up with that, but in general, you know, putting forth an African-American candidate putting forth a female candidate, those were the Democratic Party's attempts to sort of appeal to a wider audience and say, you know, we're, we're understanding of your desire to be represented more fully. And even if we can bring in a Sanders type, because you would lose so much of the Democratic Party doing that, maybe you could find someone a little more to the left than Biden. Maybe you could try to do more to at least indicate real concern for the issues with people, which people are feeling are being ignored. And I think that that would, you know, hopefully cause more satisfaction and consensus that the Democratic Party needs to be united because ultimately there's no way to defeat the Republican Party, which is rather united right now, than to have, you know, a similar force because it's a two-party system and people people know that. So I think they need to be reminded of it. Uniting the Democratic Party in light of the failed repudiation of Trump and the prevailing feeling of Trumpism amongst Trump supporters makes unifying the Democratic Party even more important because not only do we have to unify 
against Trump. It shouldn't just be opposing Trump. It should be unifying for a shared vision, even if it's compromised, which in a two-party system, it usually is. There should be a unified, agreed-upon, satisfying vision that combines both the younger progressive Democrats and the more moderate centrist Democrats. I would like to see some sort of unity between the wings of the Democratic Party. Elections can have a tendency to unite a people, but much more often than not, elections provide grounds for various factions to air their dirty laundry. Elections can be really tumultuous. They can evoke fear, anxiety, anger, and ultimately bad blood. And there's a lot of bad blood within the Democratic Party. And while Joe Biden might not be everyone's first pick, Joe Biden has demonstrated a capacity to bring people together over his four decades in Washington. Moreover, and this is a hobby horse I've been riding for some time, the executive branch is much more than a president and a vice president. It is a team effort. And there's a world where a cabinet government under the leadership of an old school uniter in his twilight years can speak not just to the Democratic Party to create a sense of bona fide unity, but it is possible that Joe Biden with his connections in the Senate, perhaps maybe because he's an old white guy, can speak to Republicans in the Senate and in state houses to try to get the country back on the right path. Most people agree, and there are plenty of Pew polls to support this, that the country is on the wrong track. One great thing about living in an electoral democracy is the opportunity to at least feel like you get a fresh start every once in a while. In the US, it's every four or eight years. And we get a fresh start. It ain't clean, it's not a clean start. It's not a total reboot, but it's an opportunity to think afresh. And it's been a real pleasure to think through some of these problems with you all. But of course, I can't let you go without giving each of you a chance to recommend to our audience something that speaks to the idea's mission. Of course, best if this is something that our listeners can get their hands on or lay their eyes on in the throes of a pandemic. Jacob, what do you endorse today? All right, so my endorsement goes to a YouTube channel that I've been binge watching over the past couple of weeks. Uh, it's called Modern Day Debates, um, and it's run by this guy called James, and he <clears throat> hosts debates on politics, science, 
uh, and religion, and he himself sort of takes a back seat and just watches prominent online people debate. Um, and it's really, it's entertaining and it's informative. So I highly recommend it. Modern day debates on the YouTubes. Hannah Cook, you always have such great endorsements. What's your endorsement for today? <laughs> Thank you. My endorsement for today is Miss Stacey Abrams for her benevolent and untiring action in the state of Georgia, which in my opinion, and in those of many others, led to Biden's success in flipping Georgia. She actually has a documentary. I haven't watched this, but I'm going to guess and go out on a limb. It's pretty good. It's called All in the Fight for Democracy, where she talks about voter suppression. Yeah. So I'd go check that out. I'm going to go watch this. I have a question for you. Uh -huh. If offered a high-level cabinet post, should she take it or should she double down on her efforts to be the next governor of Georgia in two years' time? I would go with stay in Georgia and spread your base. She's proven that she's incredible at networking. And I think she has great pull with the, what do you say, Georgian people? I don't know, people of Georgia. <laughs> so I would say um, stay in Georgia and intensify her actions. She's done much good, but I think there's still, like she has so much potential to do more. Liliana, our listeners don't know that you are wearing a uh, chef's hat, like of the big puffy, big white puffy, and you're wearing an apron too, a white a, a white apron. Um, it's been entertaining to me the whole time. I feel like I'm uh, watching the Swedish chef and you sort of like bounce up and down when you talk sometimes. I'm just waiting for you to say borka, 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 but you haven't, but you can give us an endorsement. What do you endorse, Lily? Now that you said that, I feel like I should endorse Ratatouille or something, but um, <laughs> so I'm going to endorse something that, you know, I went back to watch sort of trying to distract myself from the stressful election days, plural, which was the comedy special Nanette by Hannah Gatsby. I think a lot of people are familiar with this because it's like a classic at this point, but it's also dissecting, you know, misogyny and homophobia and, you know, especially their places within comedy in a way that was really, I think, revolutionary to, to modern comedy. I'm a big fan of comedy, so I enjoyed going back and watching that. And I encourage anyone who has seen it or hasn't yet to go ahead and spend a couple hours. I'll check it out. I like comedy, too. Which explains why I'm so hilarious. Well, thank you all for your earnest engagement and for your tackling this issue of the identity of the Democratic Party. It was an absolute delight. Pleasure to spend a Sunday evening with you on the day after the election was called to make Joseph R. Biden Jr. the 46th president of the United States. Listeners, you can find us for now at jfksideas at wixsite.com. You can read our journals. We have a journal coming out real soon, also on identity. We'll probably have some podcasts about national identity. The journal is about national identity, and we will probably have some discussions about national identity. So listeners, if you want to help us out, if you're actually still here, you really shouldn't be. But please leave a like, offer a comment, please share ideas with your people. It would mean a lot to us. Y'all good? I am going to go eat dinner. Bye-bye, chef. Bye, Jacob. All right, bye.
Bye, Hannah Cook. Bye-bye.